What you are about to hear is the ultimate blend of technology and entertainment. This is ConfT with your SE. That's right. This is ConfT with your SE. I am your host, Brian Young, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Mr. Tom Porter. How are you, sir? Another day, another dollar, Brian. I'm good. How are you? <laughs> another day, another dollar. Oh, boy. Uh, you know what? Doing good. Excited for our guest today. Uh, we actually have the privilege of actually having someone that's got a little bit more experience in in this kind of broadcasting than us. Um, Ooh. Mr. <laughs> uh, you're dredging up old memories already, Mr. Young. Come on now. <laughs> you know, I, 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 well, first of all, so. to do that. <laughs> I haven't even said your name yet. You can't talk till I say your name. Oh, you should shit. know that. Okay, I'll stop. <laughs> yeah, this is uh David Gutshell. He is uh oh he's he's a good friend of mine and um also a coworker here at Cisco. But in a previous life, he uh he does come from a background of radio broadcasting. So David, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? <laughs> Because oh, I tried finding some clips and was unsuccessful. Uh, wow! So I, yeah, I, I like kill myself for ever bringing this up. But uh, <laughs> so way back in a former life, I used to work at a local computer store doing um, basically backroom tech, uh, building machines, fixing machines, break fix. This is nineties uh, time frame. Mm -hmm. And my boss decided that they wanted to help get the name of the store out there. Again, this is back when you know, there were a lot of independent computer shops, different places. And so he bought airtime for a essentially what amounted to a radio show for troubleshooting, allowing listeners to call in and asking questions like, hey, my machine's doing X. What do I do about it? And so I age-wise, I was either 18 or 19. I'm not sure exactly which. Um, but suddenly my boss rolls off of like the first episode and says, hey, Gutshaw, you're, you're going to do the rest of these. So here I am, literally <laughs> wet behind the ears, right, at, at this age. And I'm being dragged into doing essentially the host of this um, AM radio, computer troubleshooting, and, um, <laughs> you know, uh, call, right? And, yeah. uh, you know, what I learned real quick was, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of bumper, a lot of music bumpers, a lot of ads, a lot of commercials. So the hour long radio broadcast is, I don't know, maybe only like 20 minutes of content. <laughs> like you only really are talking to people for like what 20, I think it was longer than that, but it was definitely under 40. Um, the time is currently 1022, weather is 37 degrees, and now we go back to David. <laughs> there, you, there you go. Yep. Yep, that's exactly right. So, a lot of that. Yeah, a lot of that. So, yeah, it was just early on. I probably did it for – my head says I did it for a year, but it probably wasn't that long. And then you just stopped sponsoring it, and the thing went away. But great, great, just incredible experience early on. Um, and, yeah, what do they say? I have a face for radio. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I won't speak for Tom, but I know I do. I think, I think we all have that face for radio and, uh, and of course that's Worked why we're also on YouTube. So, so be yeah. sure to follow Ooh. us and uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel. <laughs> yeah. Just turn the video off audio only folks really. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's how we started and we, we stay true to our roots, uh, as an audio first podcast. So, all right, no, that's that's cool. I'm and I I, I needed to bring that up because I thought that was so cool. I think it's one of those things that, you know, everyone that's 
you know, listened to the radio at some point in the late nineties, right. They've heard of these kind of, you know, call in, you know, computer help shows. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I thought that was just so cool that you were in there, but that's not what we're talking about today. Nope. Today we are talking about, uh, industry 5.0 and David, if you could please tell us about your credentials and experience in the, uh, industrial IT, IOT manufacturing space. Uh, that will set the stage for what we're going to sure. talk about. Yeah, absolutely. So as you kind of heard from the, the earlier story, um, I've been kind of touching computers basically since I was knee-high to a grasshopper. Um, in fact, my first machine <laughs> that I got was something that my parents bought me. It was a TI-99-4A back in the, the, you know, probably 80 or 81, something like that. Anyway, um, so kind of coming out of, um, you know, high school, went, uh, got my double E and then I had been working for manufacturers, basically um, starting actually while I was in college. My first kind of uh, manufacturing gig was at uh, while I was in college. And I worked for manufacturers on the customer side, primarily in the network engineering and network architecture space um, through kind of my, my customer career. But about two thirds of the way before I joined Cisco, I flipped to the kind of the OT side, right? The other side of the concrete wall, that kind of process automation, engineering, and integration space. Um, and so I had learned essentially what amounted to traditional networking, uh, but in, in a for, networking in a factory. Um, and I was the, I'm going to call the clickety-clacker, as an old director used to call me. Like, you're the clickety-clacker, the guy on the keyboard. This is back when all, every keyboard made noise, right? <laughs> and, and um you know, I had essentially cut my teeth on factory networking, and, um, and and I was the technologist. I was the engineer, right? In fact, I was a hair away from my route switch CCIE at one point. Um, passed the written, failed the labs um, because I was distracted, easily distracted, right? Um, and because of the work we were doing in the factory, and. Right. Um, Kind of the big kind of claim to fame in my career before joining Cisco is we took a, a plant uh, at Harley Davidson that was in danger of closing in 2008, 2009, and it won Industry Week's Best Plan Award in 2013. And it won that because we were doing what we currently talk to customers about well before it was a thing anybody spoke about. So we were trying to converge IT and OT before anybody even called it OT. We were extracting data from machines before anybody really talked about extracting data from machines. We were, um, you know, it, it, you know, standing up automated guided vehicle systems with um, on corporate wireless before AGV companies were willing to do that. So mm. a lot of early kind of work into what Cisco ultimately built, and then since joining Cisco. I for I've been here almost eight years now, and for seven of seven to seven and a half of the eight years, all I've worked with is manufacturers. So my role at Cisco really is to kind of um, you know leverage that background and that experience to talk about talk to customers about you know what are you going to run into what you know uh, it, through that kind of journey. I had to work with controls engineers and maintenance mechanics and unions and non unions and general managers that, you know, didn't believe a darn thing of what we were doing and thought we were leaning too much over our skis. And so mm -hmm. real comfortable talking up and down the stack, technically, non-technically, 
um, to just about any kind of audience. And that's basically what I do in my day job, right? Go, um, go to customer, talk about, you know, how Cisco can help and, you know, how my background relates to what they're trying to do. And man, I got more war stories than you sh- shake a stick at. So, um, you know, <laughs> I, I always say I've been there, bought that t-shirt before I've been in your <laughs> shoes. Let's talk about how I can help. So. Yeah. And I, I think that's why I, I, I love working with you and any chance I can get to bring you into a customer to talk. I, uh, IOT and, and, and OT, I jump at because I've got a little bit, as you know, a little bit of history in manufacturing yeah. before a yeah. couple, couple roles before this one. Um, I was a network analyst for manufacturing facility here in Connecticut and, you know, all those things you just mentioned about, um, the general managers and, you know, the, the leaning over the skis and cost centers, manufacturing, especially, especially in this country, right? is very focused on both just in time, right? Because we want to keep that inventory down. We want to keep the amount of uh, of, of money just kind of just sitting there. You don't want money just sitting nope. there. You want it to be used. You want it to be sold. You want it to be um, moving. Um, and of course, the cost centers as well that roam around with that, that roll with that because they will look at IT as just a cost. There's no benefit. Mm-hmm. It's not giving us anything. It's not, right. if I, if I, buy this new $10,000, you know, switch, is it going to make any more, is it going to allow me to make more widgets per hour? No. But what we can do beyond that, that's where the value lies. And of course, having someone come from your experience that can connect at that level and meet them there and say, I've gone through this. These are the things that you're looking at. These are the things you're concerned about. I totally get that. Here's what other customers have done. Here's the best practices. Here's why Cisco is invested in this space and giving you, mm-hmm. whether it's hardware and or software, that's purpose-built for the IoT, OT space. A- and absolutely. you got to connect at that level. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, you, know, you, you made a comment that you know, it doesn't directly translate, the switch doesn't directly translate into additional widgets. And, and I would argue, you know, back from my previous life, we, we had three primary asks that we were trying to accomplish. Um, one was I, I need to be able to build this new, I'll call it more complicated network, and I need to have less people supporting it in the future than, than I do now. Two, it needs to be flexible enough that the business can make whatever decisions they want to make think line balancing or moving an assembly cell from here there or new model launch. And they didn't want to have to engage IT as a project anymore. It's like, look, this should be a change inside of our factory, not this big, huge project. And then finally, the the last one was we had to operationalize the network to allow the business to basically to react to the speed at which, you know, they were moving. Those were kind of our three big care abouts. And I would argue that Without Cisco's industrial networking equipment and capabilities that were just beginning to sort of show up, we wouldn't have been able to accomplish any of those three. Because suddenly with the SD cards, I could stock um, replacement switches in the tool crib. And Mm. I could give maintenance and instructions that said, look, if you think you need to swap the switch out, take the SD card out dismount the the switch from the DIN rail, go get a new one out of the tool crib, go put it back on, slide the SD card in and see if it works or not. And 
that, that, I mean, that's huge, right? What do they do? They power everything off. They power it back on. If it doesn't work, they start replacing components. And if they think yep. the network's the problem. So there was no MACD. There was no change request. There was no ticket to IT that was required to do that. Um, so that's the one thing. And then the second part, and I think this is even, you know, a, a, in my mind, it was a, a bigger deal. And that is we combined the switching and uh, PLC point IO all in a singular cabinet and made all of the configurations identical outside of the management address. So you could actually look on the bottom of the control enclosure and see the management address. And it had a unit number. Unit number was, let's say, 150. Well, 150 corresponded to the last octet. And so you knew the address of the thing you were looking at. And so, you know, suddenly I've got identical configurations everywhere. I could give maintenance a pile of SD cards with new unit numbers. They needed to add a station. All they did was went, grabbed a no one from the tool crib, slid an SD card in it, threw that sucker up, and boom, online we went. Mm-hmm. And that operationalization, empowering the business, that could not have happened. Honest to goodness, guys, it couldn't have happened without Cisco's stuff. Um, and so in that regard, it absolutely directly translated into more units per hour and, and less downtime. Because less, there was yeah, less down, downtime for sure. Less downtime. Because it used to require this big, massive, you know, undertaking of, okay, open a ticket. No, that's too big of a deal. You need to open a project. um, I forget what it was called. It was like a project requisition request. And it was just, Mm -hmm. um, anyway. (laughs) And, And the people that are, that are in charge of these lines, they're used to being able to just swap out a component, fix something, troubleshoot there. They know that machine in and out. Like, Like I think of all the. In, in, in that manufacturing position I was in, they knew those machines. They they knew everything about them. They knew when they needed to change the uh, the bits, or you know they needed to recalibrate it, or it was not operating the, the right way. And they had no problem opening up the cabinet, unscrewing stuff, taking components out, and being able to. I don't know if this is a word. Componentalize. <laughs> that, <laughs> I like that that operation right. yeah. to be able to be like, hey, this is this is a a, a very high-tech piece of equipment, right, that is outside of the scope of what I do, right? It's not just a, a simple relay or a transformer or a resistor or whatever, right? It's This is a network switch. This is, has a lot of components in it, and there's a specific configuration to get it to run. But what you were able to do is just allow them to pop that SD card out, swap the hardware, pop it in, done. Oh, it's working great. That was the problem. Absolutely. There's even a cultural component, you, you, you know, or um, rack-mounted switches, right? They, the business, the operations, maintenance, they see that as an IT component, like do not mm-hmm. touch. And it kind of gives the, I'm going to call it this, it kind of throws this divider in. Whereas our industrial switches are DIN rail mounted. They sit next to their gear. It feels like theirs. It doesn't feel like IT. And so mm-hmm. that lower, like do not underestimate the, cultural shift that happens when you try and get folks to your point that are used to owning everything inside of the machine and now suddenly you're putting a component in there that they don't completely control the fact that it's their form factor that you're giving them the ability to basically do tier one and tier two i'm going to call it troubleshooting Mm -hmm. lowers that cultural catalyst curve so much really does yeah that's a really good point. Just meeting them 
kind of meeting them where they're at. Yes, meeting them where they are. It's an interesting topic because I, I'll, I'm going to give you an example. I have two customers, um, you know, uh, big, big manufacturing customers, and that's actually one of the things they complain about. M- most of my contacts are obviously in the IT. We're sure. trying yeah. to expand, you know, yeah. to to beyond that. But that's one of the common complaints I actually get from my customers is f- defining that line between where IT stops. Mm-hmm. And really, the plant, you know, managers and mm-hmm. operators take over, and uh, you know, it's it's actually been hard sometimes to try to broker a closer relationship between the <laughs> two. Like, yeah, look, there's a lot of things we can actually simplify on both sides of the spectrum mm-hmm. here, you know, just by taking a look at changing some of these things. One of the common problems I'm sure you guys are aware of is, uh, you know, like a lot of the a lot of the tools these these guys use use like one nine two one six eight. 0.1 right as mm-hmm. the little with self-contained network you know for that piece of equipment and a lot of times they don't change that mm-hmm. <laughs> once it's installed right. so now you've got a whole bunch of other things you know so that, that's that's a burden for it right okay we got to figure out a way for make that communicate with the rest of the network they may have a hundred other components that have that exact same ip scheme and you know how do we make that work so yeah it's interesting uh that's an interesting concept of you know putting something that they're used to in their own environment that, you know, that might, might make that easier for them to consume. Yeah. And you, you said an interesting point there around trying to figure out kind of where it stops and where OT begins. And I want to, I'm going to double down on the um, cultural comment here and say too many customers look at this as a technical question where should IT stop and where should OT begin or where should, you know, let's say your um, maintenance group owns the kind of that networking stack at the bottom here. Maybe your controls team owns it. Every customer is different. And I would argue that what you actually need to ask yourself is organizationally, where's the split belong? Not technically. And then organizationally, once you kind of figure that out, then you can, you know, if you're, let's say you're re-architecting a plant or doing it again, then you're going to architect it to kind of align with how the organization wants to sort of manage it. Because I've seen all different versions, right? I've seen IT own the entire way down. I've seen IT literally have like their version of what I'm going to call an IDF and then um, OT, the process side, have an exact duplicate IDF with like a big layer two trunk here. And then the only reason they do that is they both want sort of ACL control of traffic. And because you, you know, you want the ability, basically both have to agree now. So IT has to kind of sign off. This is what we're going to allow. And then the process side signs off. like that. Like that. So, um, you know, obviously that customer has to have a, a deep manufacturing IT bench. But for that customer, it makes sense, right? Because... You know, they've got a, a, what I'm going to call it networking team that maybe is more responsible for, um, again, line technologies versus traditional back office technologies. So in my mind, that split and in the and ultimately the architecture kind of at that edge point is more dependent upon the organization and not kind of what the network looks like, if you will. Good stuff. Yeah, and I think, Tom, to go back to your point, too, that that kind of that the culture of as i was talking about before those guys they they know i just have to slap in a new part i just mount it on a rail 
and they have that idea of, well, if I need blank, I'm going to buy it out of my cost center and I'm going to install it. I don't need to ask anyone other than maybe finance for permission. Maybe it's in my budget. I don't even have to do that, right? I'm just given a, right. you know, a certain amount of dollars a quarter to spend on expansion and whatever. So when you introduce something like the computer network that is a lot more complex and is reliant on all the other pieces of the of the network, right, to function, mm-hmm. that concept of just I'm going to buy the box, I'm going to slap it in and it's going to work it's ingrained in them. So what's yeah. going to end up happening is, as we know, you're going to run into issues if you do that over and over again without, without notifying IT. And that will, you know, they don't like, they don't like doing that sometimes, right? Every customer is different. And, you know, when we're talking culture, right, things change. So um, that may not be the case for everyone, but it is definitely something that I think has impaired IT's ability to really get into that uncarpeted space and mm-hmm. work side by side uh with those people in in that that are responsible for those pieces. So with all that being said, the title of this podcast episode is Industry 5.0. Now, I would love to know what the in- what industries 1 through 4 was. Um but really David, I I want to go in, into this and understand what is Industry 5.0? How is it different from the other ones? Where where are we at? Cuz I I'd imagine that it's very manufacturing and and um yeah manufacturing in general is not always bleeding edge when it comes to technology right they 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 get an asset they run it for 20 30 40 years if they can mm-hmm. and and bleed it completely dry to get as much revenue back from it as possible so it's paid for so they're not going to always right right exactly <laughs> so they're they're not going to be quick to adopt something that's brand new that mm-hmm. let's face it um, you know, may require a little bit more troubleshooting and, and handholding and, and everything else. So uh, let's 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 dive into this, David. What can you tell me about Industry 5.0? Yeah, so let's let's level set on kind of what the sort of the definition of 4.0 generally is. And by the way, um, in some cases, right, this is like lies, damn lies, and statistics. You're going to go out there and look, and there's going to be various different definitions that are close. So, you know, if you listen to me and you go, well, that's not the definition I use, I will probably come back to you and say, you are also right. So, um, you know, these are, are what I'm going to call generally loose <laughs> terms, right? So uh, you can think of Industry 4.0 is taking the data that all of our different systems and subsystems and similar were making, and instead of like using it in the moment and tossing it. So think about a, a robotic cell from like the mid-70s. That robotic cell was using data in the moment to make decisions about, you know, where its position was in space and what step of the process it was on and is it at its home point and similar. And it would use the data in the moment and it would throw it away. Um, it wasn't historized. It, it wasn't recorded. It, no other system knew about it. And once it was kind of back to its home point, ready for its next operation, there was no knowledge or thought about the data that just happened from its last operation. Industry 4.0 is really the evolution of that concept of like, hey, maybe we start recording all of the operations of the robot. Maybe we begin to look at that data in new and unique ways. Maybe we compare that cell with the other four identical cells and try and figure out why cell one tends to perform better than cell two or cell two requires more preventive maintenance operations more often, even though they were bought at the same time. Or again, leveraging data in new and unique ways 
um, whether inside of the facility or between facilities and what have you, right? So that's essentially the, you know, that's like the summary version of four. Five, um, I would argue, is still being sort of fleshed out. But the general concept of 5.0 is about, uh, I'm going to say maybe four different things. One, it's being more people-centric than we've been in the past um, but, and people centric, what I really mean there is beginning thinking about how do I put people in places to do higher value added work? How do I automate places where maybe I didn't automate yesterday and now I don't need a human there. And so now let's start thinking about how, where do we put our people in the best places to succeed? That's kind of the first thing. The second thing is just being more sustainable across the board. So, you know, I think every public company that you have today uh, probably has a sustainability plan. It may or may not be directly tied to the manufacturing process. So it'd be like bringing those kind of concepts, you know, sort of down the stack to ensure that we're, you know, we're being, you know, I'll call it sustainable. Um, The third is um, around uh, carbon, true carbon neutral targets that companies globally are going to meet, mainly because of um, some of the EU regulations that are being passed that are going to require uh, companies and in, 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 in similar to, to hit that, um, to hit those targets. And so, you know, how are industries going to be able to have to change and, um, you know, change their focus and how they run their business in order to, 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 to meet that, right? And I think finally, the, the kind of the fourth area is, We've been talking a lot about leveraging AI in the process to make decisions, but it's been a lot of, you know, to use the kind of the term, it's been a lot of all hat, no cattle. A um, lot of promises, not a lot of really good d- d- deliveries on it. Industry 5.0 is finally going to be leveraging all of the crazy, ridiculous um, models that we're all seeing coming to light, I feel like daily now, and pushing them into manufacturing and have it not be a science project. I think AI and Industry 4.0 has been mainly about AI science projects. With five, it's not going to be science projects anymore. So those are the those are the main areas and, and main main focus um, for for five. Although I'm sure you could go out there and I don't know, look at I won't throw any names under the bus, but look at some of your large business um, process houses and business change houses and um, similar consultancy firms. And they probably all have a different opinion because <laughs> it's, it's still being firmed up. Right. Right. But it, and it sounds to me like the, you would need to kind of meet at least some of the requirements of industry 4.0 in order to get into 5.0. Uh, would, uh, would that be accurate? I, absolutely, that would be accurate. I, I would argue that that's actually what Cisco's bread and butter is, right? Um, and I'll, I'll I'll reference a slide that I use talking to customers right now. So it was a Deloitte survey where they asked customers like, what over the next 12 months, I think the way it's phrased is, over the next 12 months, what technologies do you believe are going to be needed in order to eat, meet you know, your operational efficiency targets. And the top two that pop out well above everything else from AI to blockchain, to quantum computing, to 5G, to name your buzzword, the top two that pop out well above the rest, um, like 15 to 20% above the rest are, um, automation and robotics. That's the first one. And, um, 
uh, data analytics. What do you need in order to automate? What do you need in order to be able to, you know, leverage data? And again, you know, analytics is basically a buzzword for leveraging data to make decisions. Um, what do you need for that? You need a, a network. You've got mm-hmm. to connect to the assets. You've got to connect to the assets securely. You've got to be able to remote into the asset. All, all of the things that Cisco not only does well, but we've been doing it for a long time. And so, right, that foundation is required for Industry 4.0. So spot on, Brian. Yeah. No, it, it's, I mean, you, you need that data. And the means of getting the data, first of all, is what type of sensors and feedback can I get from the device, cell, whatever, right? Whether that's something just like, you know, counting the number of widgets I'm producing or going a couple of steps further and monitoring things like temperature, RPMs, uh, current draw, right? We all know that if a motor is, is, is set to a, a specific RPM, and it's drawing more current than usual, it means it's fighting harder. It's, it, maybe the, the bit mm-hmm. is getting worn. Stuff like mm-hmm. that, which can help with, as we talked about, uh, automation, um, maybe we change the, the preventative maintenance schedule around a little bit, and that can in, increase production and or um, increase the bottom line. So being able to collect that data, whether it's analog or digital, and then to your point, getting it, to where it needs to be securely and and ensuring that it gets to where it needs to be. And this was one of the things that I loved back when, and I don't even know if I can, if I can say the name anymore. Actually, I don't even know if I remember it now. Is it, was it kinetic? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Kinetic. Yep. <laughs> I don't yeah. know if, I don't know if that's yeah, a, if it's a dirty memory. word to say sure now, right. <laughs> <laughs> but the idea was there and I'm like, this is cool. Like, okay. Making sure not only it, it was, it was taking the network to the next level of just not just transmitting the data, but actually ensuring that it got there. And if it couldn't get to where it needed to get, holding on to it until that resource was available. Like what? When, when a network doesn't do that. A network is, is basically a highway. It's like it's not a highway and a parking lot. Um it, it, it was it was it blew my mind that I thought it was the the right thing to do. And it, it things have shifted, right? And 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 kinetic is is was no longer what where is kinetic right now? Is uh, it? Yeah, so there's a few bits and piece parts from an idea standpoint that we kept. So actually, let me right. since we you brought that term up, I'll I'll touch <laughs> on that for a bit, right? So in my mind, kinetic had two primary problems. One, it was early, so I think it was I, I think it was you know I think if you went back and you kind of started doing that now, I think that the market would be in a better place. Uh, and two, it was too many different Lego blocks inside of Cisco including some third-party components. And so it was sort of a yeah. sort of a zombie, right? You had a bunch of different third-party components and, uh, combined with the market not being quite ready. Um, and it just, yeah, it kind of fell flat. But to your point, the vision of, of what that vision is, it was just early. It was an early vision. Um, the pieces that, I call it the piece that we've kept and it's much more inside of Cisco's wheelhouse is the edge intelligence component. So part of the kinetic stack was um, the the cloud to on-prem connector that gave you the ability to make uh, decisions about how long you kept data, wh- what data that you sent, where it might go. And so that edge intelligence component that let's say, and I'll use, a, I'll use an, um, an example for a second, maybe you record... Um, uh, I, I'll use your example. Maybe you record temperature uh, because temperature is important to your process, and maybe the PLC records it at every scan time. 
So you get literally a temperature value like every hundred milliseconds. Well, that's cool, but that what are you going to do? You're going to stream a lot of data. the value, right? You're going to stream <laughs> the value to your cloud provider once every hundred because they're monetizing you every bit. Oh heck yeah, <laughs> Mister Customer, send us every one of those bits, baby. Historize Bring every single thing, right? Bring it on. <laughs> Whereas, and boy, that's a talk track separately that I would love to get down maybe on a future <laughs> podcast, but, um, but you know, that's not only potentially a lot of intellectual property because, you know, you, you, somebody can see what the, how varying your temperature is at your facility. Maybe for purposes of argument, maybe we only want that once per hour. That's sufficient. So right. I would be able to essentially put an EI connector in and say, look sit there and record every value over the hour. And at the end of the hour, average the value and send to average. That is the kind of control we can, we can still now do with that edge intelligence product. Um, you know, and I would say that maybe the cloud providers, you know, let's just say that's probably not their, their most popular product, because again, it's, it's interfering potentially with the monetization of every one of those bits of data. Um, I'll make one other comment there and just say, a lot of times the reason why it doesn't necessarily come up is because the folks paying the cloud bill are not the folks that are, care about the data storing. And so if in some future world, as IT and OT combine, suddenly the same group that's paying that bill sees that, I could very easily see the cloud to on-prem pendulum swinging back a little bit. Because I think mm-hmm. once the actual cost associated with, look, the cloud's not magic. All you're doing is giving control up, basically, of, um, you know, you're saving some money on the personnel front, potentially, but, um, you know, you're just kind of passing that along to somebody else. And so, again, it, you know, storage isn't free, whether you're doing it or somebody else is doing it. Yep. I, I, I want to push back. So two things that are just making me laugh. First of all, I want to push back on the first thing you said about this, that where temperature is important to your process. Mm-hmm. And I would push back on that and say, I think temperature is always important to your process, <laughs> even if it's just ambient temperature, right? Because you and I have talked about this a lot, right? <laughs> and go, going back to the, to the case of things like um, um, preventative maintenance and, and, mm-hmm. and whatnot, being able to determine and, and, and visualize and see and collect the data on the fact that I can produce more widgets when my ambient temperature is between 68 and 72 degrees. If it's higher than 72, my production goes down, or my production may go up, but my reject goes up as well, True. right? Heck, it so, might be because Jane hates when it's hot in the plant. I mean, you know, it, your point, right? You just don't know. <laughs> yeah. You, you, you don't know what you don't, what you the, 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 right. the data you don't collect. So I, I would push back and say, even if temperature isn't, a, a, a necessary component of the process of the widget you're building, I would I would argue and say I think I think it's still important to keep an eye on that for other reasons. You may <laughs> yep. great, you may great find argument. out. Yeah, yeah. Great um, the other thing I wanted to mention was I, I'm I'm cracking up here. So I I don't know if I showed this to you, but I've been working on this little project here, and it's. Uh, <laughs> It's an oil tank level reader. And I'm going to try to get this on the camera. I'll just unplug it here. So for those listening only, you're going to have to go on the YouTube channel to, to see this. <laughs> um, it's a tiny little ESP8266 controller connected to a little LiDAR sensor. 
and wrote the code in Adreno. ChatGPT helped me out uh, with, with Thanks, that. ChatGPT. Yep. Thanks, ChatGPT. And uh, I'm using a third-party service called Blink, and this just streams the measurements that the LiDAR sensor reads and sends it up to Blink. Now, I was I'm, I'm, the reason I bring this up is because you mentioned about you know sending the values every every couple of milliseconds. I don't know exactly how often I'm sending the value of this of this tank reader, but I I know it's way too often. I, <laughs> sure, I think right. it's once every five seconds, and I'm Ooh. like, yeah, I, I don't need that. It's it's a little bit of data. It's not a problem, and it's, it doesn't cost anything for me because I only have the one device. If I, you know, made this into a business and had you know multiple customers and and hundreds or thousands of tanks that I monitored. You know, then it would cost cost me a little something, but for a little project like this, like eh, no big deal. But uh, you know, I was thinking about this process of okay, this thing is constantly reading the value of the, the measurement, right? The la- the lidar sensor is constantly measuring the distance, and I don't necessarily need it to do that. I mean, I may not want to just check it every five minutes because. Maybe there's, you know, maybe it was a, a, a weird value or something reflected weird because oil was sloshing around a little bit. Something weird, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe I just have it do a a set of five or six measurements every five minutes and then give me the average value of that and send that up, right? Um, and especially for something like an oil tank reader for uh, oil tank level monitor for home heating oil. Like once a day is sufficient. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. Like I'm not going to burn through a hundred gallons in a day. No, and, that's right. Be concerned. So, right. um, just, I, I, again, I, I don't know if I shared that with you. I, I talked to you about you it, but I, I just thought it was funny and I figured I'd, I'd share. So yeah, it's fun, fun stuff. Always be mindful of the data you're sharing and sending. And of course, especially uh, when you're sending it to a cloud service, be mindful of how often you're doing that because mm-hmm. you may not need to. Yeah, and, and so, be mindful. Oh, go ahead, Tom. I was going to say today's podcast brought to you by Brian's Oil Tempting. <laughs> right, 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 right. Going on sale shortly. Right. Price to be determined. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> For more information, reach out at hello at comp.t.show. Yeah, right. Uh, wow. Well. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's a good practice just generally. I mean, even for people uh, um, in general, is always be mindful of the data you're sharing, the data you're sending in a cloud, the data you're filling in the form. You know, I would argue, you know, oversharing is always bad, always bad, um, because the more that it's out there in the more places, the more places potentially could get breached. And, you know, your information's out there, although some buddies of mine, uh, if they ever watch this, uh, Jimmy and Trevor would both say all your data is already all over the place. So, you know, don't even worry about it. But I'm Sorry, very, Don. very mindful of, <laughs> you know, oversharing. It's um, you should be mindful of it on the corporate side as well as, you know, always ask yourself, do they need this? Yeah. Can you push yeah. back? Yeah, that, that's, a, right? that's a good point. Can I can I share with Tom and the audience what what you had uh, said when we when you first hopped on? Would you would you the question you'd asked me along along this, uh, sure. this mindset? Yeah. So. So Tom, uh, David Assey goes, uh, you know, we're not going to be recording the video too, right? And I said, oh yeah, no, it's 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 going to be on YouTube afterwards. He goes, damn it. So we we may just if if in the final edit of this video, David is just a static emoji happy face. He he's concerned and understandably so in this day and age about his privacy, and that's what we did. So I'm not I'm not I'm not sure if we have to go that route or not. I don't know if I have a bit emoji. That's, I mean, that's I need, totally. I mean, they call them bit emojis. I need to make a bit emoji of myself. 
Well, you can do that. You just have to upload about 50 photos of yourself. Right, right, right. Right, Right. back to the oversharing. What is the devil I know better than the devil I don't? Yeah. I'm I'm not going to name the social media network that that did this. Um, I'm sure you can Google it. Um, But (laughs) there was a social networking company, a pretty big one, that a couple of years ago was trying to kind of battle this whole thing, uh, the issue with revenge porn. Where you know you send a, a, a an illicit photo of yourself to a significant other at the time, and then you know things go sour, and that person wants to get back at you and decides to share that intimate photo with with everyone else. And the solution that this company came up with was send all of those illicit photos to us, and we'll tell you if we find it anywhere <laughs> in our network. And oh, I'm like. My. Now, I, I don't think they actually uploaded the photo. I'm sure they just read the mate. But still, it's like, you know, come on. <laughs> really? My goodness. You're, you're, you're missing the point. <laughs> I, I can say this as, a, as an over 40s uh, uh, married guy with two kids. And that is, you know what the lesson is, kids? Don't take naked pictures of yourselves and send them <laughs> to your significant other. Like, after only a week. or ever ever. like come on you know go buy yourself an old polaroid you don't need to google that maybe somebody they they still make them my my daughter got uh, a little i I don't think it's made by polaroid i think it's made by fujifilm okay um but it's it's an instant you know you take the picture and the little thing pops out and you know you shake it like you're not supposed to and uh and uh, the the picture develops in front of you it was hilarious was there was Everyone shakes. You're not supposed to, right? But yeah, uh, yeah. it was hilarious because when she first got it, it's got this cool little mechanism where you press a button and it, it extends out the lens and it opens the uh, the protective cover. But it wasn't opening the protective cover and we didn't realize it. So I swear she took three pictures where it was just all black. And we're like, I didn't think it was that dark in this room. And I look at it and I go, oh, the, the, the damn protective thing is still closed. We had to, <laughs> you know, adjust it and mess around with it. But yes, do not take photos and send them then because uh, they'll be out there. Uh, this public service announcement brought to you by your friends at the Comp T with your essay. The more you know. <laughs> right, the more you know. Right. <laughs> I don't think that's a thing Well, anymore. we've gotten off track here from uh, preventative maintenance to nudes. Uh, <laughs> this is why I love this show. <laughs> right. This is this is why we still got downloads, even though we didn't record or, or publish a new episodes uh, for over a year and a half, so. Uh, which, by the way, thank you for those that continued sharing and, and listening. Um, all right. So knowing that, going back to our original topic here, um, knowing that the requirements of, of 4.0, or at least a, a subset of them, is really a requirement to move into the Industry 5.0 bucket, um, what would you say in terms of percentage in, 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 or even yeah, percentage in terms of the customers that you've worked with where they're at that point now, where they're at the, they've checked the 4.0 boxes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would say, rate? yeah, I, I think, well, so there, I'm going to change the, or I'll, let me define adoption rate. So you can have customers that are totally leaning into the concept, right? Um, but they're just to your point earlier, manufacturing doesn't want to change. They're not where they need to be maturity wise, even though they need to know they need to go there. So adoption of the concept, knowing that they need to go there, is above 90%. 
So more than nine out of 10 customers that I talk to are, are kind of like, look, we totally buy into what you're saying. We need to get there. Now, I realize, right, that you know, there's some bias here in the self-selection process. You have a customer willing to engage with us. Generally, they're engaging because they want to talk about this topic. So um, you know, I'm sure the actual adoption rate is probably more like 60 is my, is my hunch. Um, but of the Fortune 500, Fortune 1000, Fortune 2000 set, it's probably north of 80 to 90. Now, okay. where are they? That's the real question. And where they are is less than probably 20% are totally there the whole way, right? Um, you know, and, and that's, again, back to these networks grew organically. They acquired that company over there and that plant. This plant over here runs 24 by seven. They can't change anything. That plant over there, um, the general manager, they all own their own P&L. General manager doesn't want to talk to IT. He or she hates IT, right? There's all kinds of different reasons why um, you know, companies just aren't there. I think the most common thing that we generally are try to get customers towards is at least settle on sort of a strategic architecture, your North Star that you want to move to. And then once you kind of settle on that, then you slowly move your locations there. When you build a new plant, a greenfield plant, that's the what you leverage. And that I think everybody that we talk to is that has kind of adopted it, nodded their head. They're somewhere on that journey towards moving everybody there, but not many are there guys really. <laughs> Do you think that with the very populous popular uh, stuff around AI, that that's going to be a driving factor in getting uh, the remaining 40% to I start considering this? I I think it eventually will, because um, if I go back to when we first sort of started talking the power of digital transformation to our customers, one of the things that we harped on regularly was this concept of, you know, you don't know where your disrupting competitor is going to come from. So either you get on this train now or you're going to find yourself disrupted tomorrow. And I think the fact that it takes time to migrate these facilities to it um, kind of self-limits the amount of kind of disruption from a competitor around the corner that suddenly snaps their fingers and are done. There's a limited amount of that that can happen. To your point, I think this is potentially going to allow a company that has a couple plants that are kind of there um, they're going to maybe be able to run rings around, um, you know, their competitors once kind of, um, we settle on some, um, again, models that are, that are, that are very, very useful in manufacturing. Um, yeah. So I think that was, my, I'm always long winded, right? That was my long winded. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no worries there. Um, no, I, I, I think, I think this is awesome. Um, it, it's, it's an exciting place to be. And I think, you know, especially with this, with the stuff around AI, right. There's definitely a lot of concerns and, and David, you and I were talking about those off air, right. Yeah. But, you know, just even going back to my little pet project here, I would have had no freaking clue where to begin with writing the code to do this. And the fact that I was just able to use something like a chat GPT to say, 
write me code that uses this controller, this model, LiDAR sensor, and you know, for, write me an Adreno sketch that does that. And it's just like, it's I'm incredible, like, okay, right? Uh, I want to change it to calculate. I want so take that measurement and calculate it into number of gallons remaining based on you know the size of the tank. Just and it it, it did it all, and it's it was it got me about ninety nine percent of the way there. There might have been some tweaks that I made there, but it definitely got me a lot further along, a lot faster than the typical way of looking up information today, which is going to a search engine, Google, whatever, and typing in the term and going through a couple different articles and, you know, stealing bits here and there, it, it aggregates that uh, a bit. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the, very my concern on go. the, yeah, my concern on the, you know, to taking it back to manufacturing, right. Cause that's kind of what we're talking about here. M- my concern is the impact on early in career roles that you get those early in career roles and learn a lot about you. You learn a lot about the, the company, you learn a lot about processes. You, you, you know, yeah, it feels like, you know, excuse my French shit work initially, but that is useful and valuable to growing your career. When suddenly, uh, you know, I don't need an early in sales, early in career salesperson to be able to write an email to a VP. I had chat GPT, by the way, write an email to a VP and I gave it a, a, a kind of a specific prompt and I was shocked at how good it was. Um, in fact, I would argue it was better than the early in career salesperson would have written. To your point, right? When suddenly, you know, I don't need a code jockey to to write me an outline anymore. I can get the outline directly from ChatGPT. So now I can just go to the higher, longer in career folks and get them to do that. Th- this there's disruption all over the place. Imagine a scenario inside of let's say quality where. You know, the early in career quality person, all they're doing all day is sitting at the SPC system and, and either entering data or looking at data or number crunching data. I, that can be done via, I mean, I, the problem is early in career salespeople become later in career salespeople or early in career individuals become later in career individuals. The disruption on the front end, it will feel great in the near term and we are going to be effed in the long term if this disrupts too much. And we're only a quarter to two quarters into this being mainstreamed. I yeah. mean, I mean, two or three or four or five more years, my God. Um, yeah. I mean, it's not even, not even just manufacturing. I mean, look at like oh. McDonald's, for example. I mean, why do we need cashiers anymore? We've got all those touch screens. Pretty soon, you could just speak. I'm pressure you drive through at some point. You'll be able to just speak what you want to order. Chat GPT. They have they have a McDonald's that, that does that now. Yeah. Do they? They they, they, they have one like I. It was hilarious because it was absolutely horrible. It was it was like. It, they, <laughs> Well, you know, the promise is still being worked on, right? <laughs> yeah, it's still a work in process. But I mean, you think of you think of all the times you call up customer service, right? And instead of just having the touch tones of, you know, for reception, press one. Uh, now it's in a few short words. Tell me what your problem is, oh, and yeah. you, you know, it, it's it's that interaction, and it's it's something that I've seen across the board, not just in things like. Um, customer service, uh, you know, call center kind of scenarios, but even with self-driving vehicles, right? It's, it's that interaction between the artificial intelligence or the algorithms or whatever, the computing part of it and the human nature part of it. 
For example, if I have a self a full self-driving car and I come up to a four-way intersection where there's a pedestrian crosswalk, you and I, we, we all know the rules, right? The rule is pedestrians get the right of way, right? We know that. Uh, and the computer knows that. But what the computer would not be able to pick up on is if we all came in, they're not going to be able to pick up, at least right now, I'm sure in the future that'll change, the, 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 the body language. You know, how is that person that's standing at that at the edge of that of that crosswalk looking? Are they even looking at the crosswalk? Are they checking their phone? Are they waiting for someone? Are they running across? You know, all those different things that we are able to process because we're looking at it visually that a self-driving car with cameras or LIDAR and an algorithm and machine learning, it's not going to pick up on those nuances. And to, to take that a couple steps further, right, we know the, the, the rules of the road when it comes to, to yielding. But again, there's certain kind of, quote unquote, I'll call it body language, right, that you will use with your vehicle, right, where you're going to maybe be a little bit more aggressive or a little bit more casual, you know, flash your lights, wave your hand, something like that, that a computer today would have a harder time interpreting and applying that to the model. So yeah. I think... I think that's where we end up coming into those those kind of clash scenarios where you're yelling at your phone saying customer service or just you know banging <laughs> on the zero banging key, on the zero hoping, key. yeah right yeah We've hoping that the, the system has an override in there that right. you can cheat right and there's a whole website to that I don't even remember what it's called I'm sure someone that's listening will write it in the comments somewhere right. but there's a whole website of like how to how to get to customer service quickly on all those different companies so you just type <laughs> it in and you're like okay just right. press zero one and four and you're good right um, but it's it's that inner intersection of the the human and the computer that's always the point of contention always the point that Abs needs to be worked absolutely. on absolutely yeah i i suspect so um you know i suspect the problem is going to continue to be corner cases and to your mm -hmm. point on the pedestrian right there's corner cases that are happening every day all day all over the world on the self-driving car front the analogy i use is um or the example i use is like there's a forest fire your house is in the in the development of fire forest fire suddenly it just moves really quickly and you've got two minutes to get out of your house you pack everything up you get in that car and you know what the street is a mess it's smoke there's flames there's trees down in the you know places in the in the in the street. You basically can't see anything, but you know your road. So you drive out of that thing, you drive through it, and you get to a point where you can tell there's something up ahead. You may or may not hit it, but sitting where you are, you're going to die. So you floor it, close your eyes, hope to freaking you know um, whoever that you make it through, and you do, and everything's everything's ducky, and you get your family out safe. Congratulations, you. You've never seen that scenario before. You're never going to see that scenario again. And yet that car had no ability, even with every sensor known to man, because of the conditions on the road, it didn't even have the data to make the decision. Because so, you know, again, corner case probably will never happen to anybody listening to this or anybody that, that um, you know, a hundred times over. But those corner cases happen daily. Mm -hmm. I just don't know until the AI gets legitimately sentient and it's got human personhood and it becomes an, a, an American or an EU citizen or similar that we're going to be able to give that control up. I just don't see mm -hmm. it.
it's it's the reason why there's always that emergency stop button, right? There's always that I'm I'm going to intervene. I'm going to intervene. Yeah, yeah. That a great great job bringing it back to manufacturing, right? Think about systems, right? Um, uh, so uh, analogy going back to manufacturing, right? One of the things we talk about is our ability to make um, uh, what I'll call the clamp and uh, stop traffic decisions, we can automate that through potentially ICE, right? Maybe uh, uh, our visibility tool like CyberVision sees something bad happening and it informs ICE, hey, this bad thing is happening. And then you can turn ICE on to say, block that right now. Mm -hmm. The percentage of customers, guys, that turn this on in manufacturing is somewhere much closer to zero than 1%. Basically, no one turns it on because they all want the human in the loop. They still want the human making the decision. So we are we're a human species. We're we're hardwired to to have a human make decisions, even when the human is potentially slow, potentially makes the wrong decision in the moment, potentially falls asleep at the switch. All of the bad things that happen because of humans. We still generally want a human in the loop at the at the you know in that crucible. I think that says something maybe about you know us. <laughs> <laughs> We're doomed. So, well, maybe, or that, or, or that hopefully that's somebody a, will be that's a episode split. for another day. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> yeah, now on our <laughs> philosophical podcast episode, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was talking with uh, my son's hockey uh, parents last night. We were we were I don't know the conversation went went in all different directions. But the topic of do you remember when the Northeast? I think it was um, late nineties. I want to say ninety seven ninety eight time frame where there was a pretty major power outage that happened. Uh, in the Northeast, I think mm. it came down from Canada and came in uh, right outside of New York City. Um, and in I, you know, some, we'll have to look it up what what it was, but basically, what stopped that it was a cascade effect because there was, I guess, uh, low power lines because of extra current draw from being a hot day in the summer. Some of the high voltage, high transmission lines touched the trees, shorted out caused more load on other lines which did the same thing and it was a cascade 2003 was it 2003 okay so i was only off by five or six years so (laughs) um cascade effect the actual point of stoppage was there was someone that noticed it and was like oh that's a that's that's a Mm. trend i know what's happening here and they manually intervened if they hadn't I think they said the entire Eastern seaboard would have gone down and it would wow. have taken longer to recover because, you know, every time you, every time you, you have a down line with a, with a, with a short like that, you're, you're popping a fuse. Yep. You got to go replace those fuses. Yep. And if you're going to have thousands or, or, or tens of thousands of fuses popping, that's going to take a while to replace. Hopefully you have enough on hand. Yeah, right. Um, so, you know, it, it just goes back to that whole, you know, human or, or, or some, some, manual intervention is that last line of defense yeah you know thinking over to my my 3d printer too right there's limit switches on it i but they they still crash i mean even in manufacturing there are machine crashes all the time with regardless of what what safety measures are put in 
there's still an edge case where something happens and that machine crashes and does something it's not supposed to. Yeah, I that that so to your point, right? That that was an edge case that was never trained for. It was never no one, um, you know, an AI model. Let's say that was making decisions would never have gotten the data to be able to see it. And a human was making inferences based on incomplete data, um, but managed to catch it. And mm-hmm. so think about, you know, again, back to those, uh, you know, called corner cases. It's the corner cases that are going to be problematic for, um, you know, every industry, right? Ma- manufacturing, other industries. It, the same problem that you just mentioned is going to happen on a line with the with the model they train. And for 99% of the time when things are going well, it's going to be amazing. The 1% where it's not is where, you know, we're still going to have humans in a loop most likely the entirety of my kid's career still probably. Um, mm-hmm. But note, we said humans in the loop, maybe not humans line side actually doing work. <laughs> um, they may become, you know, what I'm going to call, uh, you know, like AI monitors or process monitors. Click, clickety clackers, right? Click, clickety clickety clackers. clackers. That's right. With an, a big fat <laughs> e-stop next to them. Like stop yeah. the presses. Um, yeah. Brian, I see a use for one of these. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> oh, Tom pulls out the Meraki button. Oh man, that's hilarious! Yeah, that Dave, that's a reference to our last episode where we were talking about the the new Meraki button and all the cool okay. things it can do, like you know, things that switches can do currently today. Sure. Right. <laughs> let's yeah, let's could... digitize it and wrap it in APIs and talk. Call right. a cloud service to do something that you're, you know. You're... <laughs> somebody should somebody build an andon system with it and um, sell yeah. it as an andon system. There you go. <laughs> there you go. David, uh, going back to something we were talking about a little earlier, where you know, as a consequence of you know where even with really industry 4.0 has taken us and then into 5.0, where losing those lower level positions, those entry level positions, mm-hmm. not just yeah. in manufacturing, but like I said, in retail, oh, yeah. food industry. Right. Does 5.0 do anything to potentially address that? Yeah, yeah. well, so that's the whole point of the, the idea of being more people-centric again. So what we're going to be doing, so we're in this sort of really weird spot right now. Uh, it's an inflection point in my mind. So there's think about the things that are kind of coming together at the same time. One, nobody can find enough people for anything. You, you name the role, you name the industry, you name the entry level to later in career, everyone's short of people. So mm-hmm. what that's doing in factories is it's causing companies to go, well, I, I didn't want to automate this process because uh, you know I have four people that are doing it today. They're five years from retirement. I'm going to let them keep doing it the old-fashioned way, and then I'll worry about it later. And oh, by the way, I've got other retired people behind them, so we'll just keep this process in place to oh my gosh, I have to automate this because I I don't have a choice. I I don't have people. So companies are looking at ways to automate because we're short of people. But now to your point, continue that through. If you don't start thinking about the impact on the person, we are going to find ourselves in this self-perpetuating nasty where we've pulled the people out of the loop and now we have nobody to actually backfill them because there's no one that got the entry level role to fix right. it. 
So while I haven't seen Industry 5.0 specifically talk about it in this language, a natural evolution of this is going to have to be, okay, well, if we're making people-centric, if Industry 5.0 is people-centric, it's both sides. It's making sure that we're up-leveling skills and putting people in places for them to succeed, maybe outside of areas where you know we don't have the job for it anymore. And in, at the same time, to your point, ensuring that we don't go so far as to, you know, remove our training from entry level roles. And now suddenly we find ourselves without a human at all. Um, sure. That's going to have to become a, a, a natural outcome of that. Yeah, Tom, 100 percent. But I don't think it, I think broadly we've connected the dots yet. And it's it's almost like, you know, other other aspects of society are almost going to have to adopt something similar. Right. So I, I think like even like just changes in education, right. You may have to focus more on where the future in industry in tech are going, right. You know, you, you keep, we keep perpetuating jobs that to your point, right. Maybe require you to start working at a McDonald's versus, Hey, I can start, you know, working in the tech industry. Um, I think that's going to become more important, right? So society as a whole almost has to change I, I, I on how we that. approach a lot of things. Yeah, I agree with that. My my yeah. big worry on that front is actually, um, look, you know, there's that old joke that, um, you know, take the average person in the room, half of everybody in the room is dumber than that person. And we joke about it. Ha ha, that's funny. But with you do what you're talking about, right? And suddenly now everyone coming out of, I'm going to call it school, there's no, there's, you know, I don't want to pick on McDonald's, so we'll pick on Arby's. You know, there's no Arby's job anymore, right? There's no Wendy's job anymore. There's only that industry's job. There's a lot of people, a lot of people that are not going to have anything. They're not going to find a role because there is no role anymore. What do we do about them? That that's my real question, and I, I mean that gets you know dovetails maybe too much into politics a little bit. So we'll kind of keep yeah. that. So we'll just keep it an open ended question. But to your point, society is going to have to answer that question somehow. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yep. Look yeah, at look I, at something I, as simple as cash for clunkers, right? You look at you look at my my, my son's turning eleven this year, right? And I mm-hmm. I look back to when I turned sixteen and. As soon as I turned 16, literally the day, my birthday, I'm out there looking for a job. Uh, minimum wage, I think was like five seventy five an hour. I was getting, I was, I got a job for eight. Cool. Right. Nice. Yeah. Right. Good uh, job. Went to go, my, went to my learner's permit, um, classes, right. Took my, took my, uh, my classes and the, the written and the, the practical and by 16 and a half, I had my license and yep. $2,100 later, I got a in nineteen ninety you know, beat up pickup truck and, you know, I was out on the road. You're not buying a car today for a first, first time car for two grand. You're mm-hmm. just not mm-hmm. all the, the you know, something programs like, and again, I don't want to dive into the politics, but programs like cash for clunkers took a lot of those, those older cars off the road, completely, you know, destroyed them. So yes, that's good from a safety standpoint and from a, cause I mean, I, I tell you, I, I've, I've been in a couple, I think I've been in one really bad accident. And if it wasn't for the fact that it was literally in a brand new car, 
I wouldn't have, I shouldn't have walked away from that. Mm. I mean, that car flipped, it landed on its side. I, I can't to this day, I can't not think about how heavy a car door feels without remembering lifting the car door up over Mm. my head to climb out of the car. Mm -hmm. Right. And it was because I was in a brand new car with a lot of safety features that I was able to get myself out of the car to begin with, um, and, and, and survive. But that first clunker that I had, that little beat up, that little beater, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't survive that. So from a safety standpoint and from, you know, emissions and everything else, I get why they do it. But at the same time, makes it a lot harder for those, for those kids to get their first cars. So it's, it's society has to figure out where that happy medium is and and adjust things, uh, to, to try to try to get somewhere. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, the, the thing I feel like, right, is, you know, it's, it's always been this way, but, you know, the political answer or the societal answer tends to lag the need. So what's going to happen is the need is going to get loud first. And then suddenly we're going to be looking back on, okay, how, how do we fix this? Um, and that, that gap is going to be painful for a lot of people. And, and, you know, that's the, to your point on the cash for clunkers front, right? There were unattended consequences to that decision that, you know, allows you to argue both sides of the argument, right? Uh, look, you took yeah. these old cars off the roads, nothing affordable for these kids anymore. Yeah. But a guy like Brian Young is here today because we did that. And if he wasn't in a new car, he'd be dead today. So, uh, you know, there are, again, same thing here. There are going to be unattended consequences. But the one thing we know is, is that there is going to be a reduction in the number of roles available that individuals that kind of that's their that's their peak of their career. And it's OK because we need them today. Mm-hmm. But when suddenly we don't need them because we've now got ways to fix it without it. it you need an you need an answer, um, and I don't know. We have no systems in place whatsoever to answer that at all. Um, you know, to the, your the, point, and I'll yeah. add to what you were saying that the evolution of the technology and the 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 whole mantra of move move fast and break things, right? <laughs> That's going to be what brings up yes. those needs. You, you and got then it. those needs are gonna are gonna get louder. And then that, then, then policy and, 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 and everything else after that follows. But especially, I mean, we, cause bringing this back to the AI conversation, it's only been mainstream for a quarter or two and it's already breaking things already. Breaking so, things. and it's breaking a lot. It it's is breaking a lot. It is. It's breaking a lot. I read a, a, an email yesterday or an article, I guess it was. Where uh, and I don't remember the specifics, but some large, um, very large law firm with something like seventy thousand lawyers or whatever are, are are actually not Chat GPT straight up, but they bought uh, rights to a model that enables them to. It sounds like replace all of what the paralegals tend to do today. What are you going to do? You're going to just simply, uh, you know. I mean, think about that. Gone. And yeah. and no, the smartest paralegal in the planet can't do it at the speed the model does. That's the scary part. It's not even like, well, we'll just get smarter. No. Yeah, no amount of sight. It doesn't matter because it can yeah. do it faster and more accurate. 
And 24 hours a day, seven days and a week. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Doesn't need benefits, doesn't get sick, doesn't get tired. Maybe it gets over capacity. We'll just add some more CPU to it. Might get a virus. Might, might get sick. Could get a virus. You never know. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Right. We'll just restore it from yesterday's backup. Test your backups, kid. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you, I, I was I was not expecting to go down uh, these various rabbit holes, but you know what? That that's what makes this this show great. And, and I know David, you started off with when we were getting ready to go here, like like how long do you need this to be? And I'm like, doesn't matter. We can go as long as we want. People want to stop listening. That's fine. So if you made it this far, awesome on you. Uh, definitely uh, longest episode I think we've recorded, but I think full of information and hopefully full of some some laughs. Uh, and, and information that you can take to help you out. Hopefully. As with everything we talked about, I know I know um, David name-dropped a few of the Cisco products, Cisco ICE, Cisco CyberVision, um, or just anything in IoT, OT-related. If there's something that you want to learn more about and how Cisco is functioning in this capacity, reach out to your Cisco account team. Uh, David, you cover a pretty wide area uh, in terms of ge- uh, geographically in the in the U.S. Uh, as an overlay, correct? Yeah, that's correct. So I cover manufacturing as a PSS as a vertical. So um, yeah, I have no no restrictions to cover accounts basically anywhere in U.S., Canada, or Latin America officially. But um, you know, most of my stuff is in uh, U.S. and Canada because my Portuguese and Spanish are not good. <laughs> well, there you go. So uh, you know, maybe maybe you'll be. Uh, You'll be blessed with uh, the presence of Mr. Gutshell here because he is an awesome, awesome resource and, and full of, of, uh, of knowledge and experience. So, um, David, any final words, any, any parting thoughts uh, before we wrap this one up? Nope. Uh, I guess I'll, I'll leave you guys with this. Well, first of all, thank you for the compliments. And uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an anecdote on that front. And that is the more I learn and the quote unquote, um, more things that I figure out in life the more I realize how dumb I really am. So it's like, you know, (laughs) yeah, it's just crazy, right? It's like, oh my gosh, I'm so clueless on that topic. Um, But no, just, uh, you know, thank you everybody. Um, Again, to your point, Brian, if you've made it this far, um, I can't possibly fathom why, but um, yeah, great great to do this today. And thank you for the invite. And I enjoyed it maybe more than I should have. So perhaps... It goes back to that early in career, uh, I guess I'll name drop. It was on AM 910 WSBA uh, in uh, good old York, Pennsylvania. There you go. That's your nugget for listening the whole time. You get to find out where that was. <laughs> it's our secret secret code is AM 910 right. WSBA. <laughs> right. <laughs> awesome. Well, um, David, thank you again for coming on. Tom, as always, thanks for being here. And thank you for listening and or watching uh, this episode of Conf Tea with URSE. Uh, be sure, as always, to stay safe out there and don't forget to save that config. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Conf Tea with your SE. For more information and resources on today's topic and others, check out the show notes on our website at conftea.show. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for future topics, drop us a line at hello at conftea.show. And remember... If you found this episode informative and entertaining, please help us spread the word by rating and reviewing the show on your favorite podcast platform and sharing it with your colleagues and friends. 
And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Until next time, this has been Conf T with your SE.